Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with Tom Griever, designer and author of Articulating Design Decisions. We talk about how to effectively explain design decisions to non-designers, how to avoid the CEO button, and how leading with yes is a great communication strategy. Enjoy the show. Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, Mary. I'd love for you to start off with talking a little bit about how you found your way into the field of design, and when did you know it was something you wanted to pursue as a career? Um, yeah, that, you know, that's been an interesting journey for me. I don't, I don't know that I was really purposeful about uh, uh, winding my way into design. I think, um, you know, I always enjoyed make. I was a musician in, in, uh, you know, like high school and even in college to a certain extent. And I, I think I found myself sort of spending as much time on, you know, posters and like album artwork as I, as I did on, on music. And then in college, I was a business major and I, you, you know, kind of every project that you work on and it, it always needed something or, you know, a friend needed a website or I, d- I just, I found myself doing a lot of design and seeing how valuable that was for people in a, in a business setting. And, and then one of my very first jobs, even though I was in a marketing role, um, because I had skills in design, they would frequently ask me to design stuff because they didn't have, you know, designers on staff. And so I sort of kind of accidentally fell into it in, in a way and I mean, I was I was I was I was getting into design in a time when um, it was changing quite a bit, uh, mostly because of of the web and uh, you know web applications and and the way that the whole industry was was turning there. So um, I, I definitely I didn't make an intentional choice to kind of focus my career on that. It just kind of happened because it was an area of interest, and I, I ended up in you know having those opportunities. That's awesome. Sort of uh, falling into it. Yeah, well, and you know, I think I think probably a lot of people have had that experience, in particular in like UX. You know, so many people come from different backgrounds, other than say art school. You know, there's so many people that were in business or were developers or behavioral psychology even that are now doing UX, and and that's kind of the way the whole industry I think has has been shaped. That no one, no, very few people right now set out to be UX designers, you know, that they didn't, they didn't, that wasn't what they wrote down in kindergarten that they wanted to be when they grow up, you know. And, and so I think we have a whole industry full of people that have had kind of similar experiences. Yeah, well, and I'm always shocked at the number of musicians. Uh, you could have so many, so many bands, uh, you know. Yeah, well, that's definitely true at our company, too. We, I think we could form a couple of different bands with all the different musicians that we have. Yeah, yeah. So you, um, you wrote this awesome book. I think it's awesome. Articulating Design Decisions. Um, talk a little bit about what motivated you to write it and what can readers expect to learn? Yeah, so um, at Batovi, we uh, design and build uh, web applications for you know mobile and um, just all browser-based uh, web applications. So we do a lot of UX and, and design, and and we're a consulting company. So we work with um, other big companies that you know need our help building these apps. And so we spend a significant amount of our time just talking to clients about about process or about why we did what we did, or you know, essentially, I mean, trying to convince them of our design decisions. And as I have built my team here at Batovi and, and hired more people and, and talked to other designers um, at our clients, I, I realized that this was that the, the ability to articulate why you did what you did when it comes to um, app design or UX um, is, is missing, that, that so many of us sort of make our decisions based on intuition 
Um, and when it comes time to present it, we, we end up in these situations where someone who doesn't know anything about design, uh, an executive or a manager type who kind of has authority over the project might come in and be like, oh, no, you know, we need to do it this way. Or, and if you're not able to convince that person that, that what you did was the right thing to do, then you, you end up kind of missing out on, a, on an opportunity there to have the best experience for the user. And, and, and maybe even it could be detrimental to the business if you're, if you're not making the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned something there, intuition. I mean, are there times that you, you know, you're able to articulate a decision that is based on intuition or are you, you know, really focused on the data, the user research? Intu- intuition is absolutely an important part of the process. And I, I definitely wouldn't say we should, you know, discard that as irrelevant. It's very important. And having good intuition on design decisions is part of what makes us good designers. This is what makes us the natural experts at this job because we know how to intuitively solve problems with design without thinking about it too much. That's kind of what sets us apart. The hard part is connecting that intuition to the problem at hand. I think sometimes we, because we get, we, we have these, these mental muscle memories that allow us to just kind of create an interface or, or build a thing or make a widget and, and we're not consciously aware of how that's connected to the problem that we're solving. And yet there always is a problem that mm-hmm. we're solving. There always is some reason why we came up with that solution, but we're not as good at connecting the dots between our intuition and, and that problem that we're solving. Interesting. Okay. So you talk about, and you've written about the CEO button. Can you talk about um, what that is and, yeah. <laughs> um, and how designers can avoid it appearing? Yeah, so the CEO button is just kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, definition I provide that it's, uh, I think I, I define it as um, a, an unusual or otherwise unexpected request from an executive to add a feature that completely destroys the balance of a project and causes designers to cry themselves to sleep. And you hear this referred to uh, in, other, uh, in other areas as like the swoop and poop or like <laughs> as like the hippo, which is like the highest paid person in the room or whatever those things. I, I personally, I, I'm not a fan of calling our stakeholders hippos and talking about their poop. But uh, so that's why I came up with the CEO button. But I, it's this it's this very common sentiment that there is someone who doesn't know anything about design. They're in charge of us and our project and our destiny and they're paying her bills. And they get to they get to make that ultimate decision. And they're the people that we have to convince. And often it feels very much like what they're what they're asking us to do is irrational or it's the it's the wrong choice or it doesn't make sense to us or they're they're not trusting our expertise and so much of much of the book uh, and a lot of the talks that I do at conferences are geared around uh, avoiding that i mean that's exactly what articulating design decisions is meant to help people with is to is to avoid those kinds of uh, scenarios mhm so you mentioned a little bit about why it happens i mean why do you think in general designers have a hard time explaining what they're doing? Well, it's partly what we talked about earlier, that we have this intuition, right, that that allows us to kind of come up with solutions pretty easily, and we're not as consciously aware of, of how they kind of connect to the problem at hand. But often, um, and in the case of the CEO button, there can be a disconnect between what the stakeholders and what the business want or need, or kind of what, what their felt needs are, and what we think needs to happen. And, and a lot of it is because we focus so much on the user, um, on, say, usability, maybe even on, um, you know, the visual design and kind of the beauty or simplicity of our, of our work. 
Um, and I think sometimes we think that we're solving problems exclusively for the user. We kind of hold the user up on that pedestal. I mean, that's why we call it UX, right? Um, and we empathy is 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 a big buzzword right now. You know, we talk a lot about oh, if we can have more empathy for users, then we'll be able to build better products. But we fail, I think, sometimes to have that same level of empathy for our stakeholders and for the business. That They're the other side. Like if we can have the best possible application, right, and the best possible design and have done all the best research, but if we're not meeting the needs of our stakeholders, then that product is never going to see the light of day. We're never even going to have the opportunity to allow our users to to see it. And so I think there's kind of this mismatched priority there where we ha- we actually have to get our stakeholders approval first. Mm-hmm. That 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 actually is more important uh, in some ways than the experience that we deliver to our users because uh, it would be it, otherwise we risk not not being able to release a product at, at all. We'll they'll never even have that chance. Right. It's a bit of a juggling act, right? You have two sets of customers, truly. Yeah. You yeah, you 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 really do. And I think I think we spend so much time rightly focusing on the people at the other end of our products that we forget about the people who are also in our meetings and who have the authority to to say yes or no to to our decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's been said that you if you have to explain your design, then it isn't very good. <laughs> it, it sounds silly, but you know, why is communicating your decisions such an important skill in you know, shouldn't your work sort of stand on its own? Yeah. So I, I think the internet meme that I see quite uh, frequently is that you know, good design is like a is like a joke. If you have to explain it, then it's not very good, right? <laughs> um, and I like I I understand I understand the sentiment, and it's kind of a a cheeky point, but I completely disagree. And maybe it depends more on the the context. Yeah, sure. When it comes to our users and the people that are using these applications. If we have to write an instruction manual, then that that maybe is not the best approach. But it's it's absolutely not true that you should be able to kind of slap your your prototype down on the conference room table and say nothing, and that your stakeholders should just immediately pick it up and 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 this light bulb <laughs> moment happens and they go, oh yes, this is the right thing to do. We absolutely have to be explaining to them why we did what we did and why it's going to solve their problems and how it's going to help uh, the business. Um, because there are dozens of ways that we could do it. Um, you know, there's always a, an alternate solution or an alternate way of doing it. This is, this is why talking about design is so hard because different people are going to have different ideas about how we solve it. And unless we're able to make that compelling case, then we, we risk someone just, you know, Googling it on their phone at the conference table and saying, well, why don't we do it like this, right? And we have to be like prepared to, to, uh, to deal with that. Right, right. So, I mean, here's an interesting twist on it. I mean, what you're doing when you go into customers is you're, you're obviously going in to provide solutions, but you're trying to earn trust, right? And oh, yeah. So, I mean, the argument could be made that people should just trust designers, right, as experts, well, that would be really nice, right? And I think that, uh, and and that, that that is certainly the goal and the and the ideal there is that ultimately you want to be in a relationship with your stakeholders that they do trust you, maybe even when they disagree. Um, and I've been in relationships uh, with stakeholders where that was possible, um, but it's really really hard. Um, and de- and it, it might depend too partly on where this other person sits in the in the organization with you. 
uh, you may not have access to them frequently enough for them to get to know you well enough to to, to trust you. Um, sure, yeah, they they hired us because we're the experts, right? Because we we know how to do this thing that they don't know how to do. Otherwise, couldn't they just you know hire anybody else or 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 do it themselves, right? So there's definitely that argument to be made. But at the end of the day, it still has to make sense to them if they're going to trust us. They're not they're not going to trust us with something that doesn't make sense. Um, and I have found that even even in cases where they disagree with your decision, that if you're able to make a logical case, like if just your logic makes sense, but maybe the solution doesn't make quite as much sense to them, but they understand your thinking, they understand where you're going with it, they understand what you're trying to do, they may be more inclined to agree with you uh, to move forward with that solution, even if they don't agree with the specific implementation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So on the flip side of this, you know, it sounds sort of sneaky, but are there times that you should avoid design or design speak when you're talking to non-designers? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a, a, a big part of the problem uh, and the breakdown in communication almost always is about m- miscommunications and uh, a gap in, in vocabulary, not having a shared understanding about the technology or the terms that we're using. So yeah, we should all, we, I mean, we should probably always avoid using jargon that someone else doesn't understand in the conversation, right? Um, but at the same time, we have to balance this need to kind of uh, to, to kind of project ourselves as the experts and kind of having knowledge in this area, with also not talking down to stakeholders who may not use the right words. Um, there have been so many times when I, I've been in a conversation about design and realizing halfway through the conversation that this person just didn't realize the word I was using. And and if you listen to them, and listening is a very very important part. Of, of, of working with stakeholders and being able to articulate your decisions. When you listen to them and you kind of hear the vocabulary they use, you go, oh yeah, you know, I, I probably wouldn't call it a carousel, but that's what the, that's the word they're familiar with. So I can, I can help this process by using familiar terms to them or, or by, or by explaining the difference between, okay, th- this actually isn't a carousel. This is, you know, but there's definitely like a fine line there between you know, talking down to someone about about words and and you know uh, using words that are going to be helpful in the conversation. So we have to have that shared vocabulary. What happens is so many design teams kind of are in their bubble and they have a shared vocabulary because they're all kind of working on the same thing. But then you get into a business environment, and maybe this is one of the reasons why I I end up I'm so passionate about this because I did go to business school and that's the environment that I started out in was working with business people exclusively and sort of becoming a designer in a business environment. Whereas, you know, people who maybe went to art school and have been on design teams or worked at agencies that were focused on design, you sort of are, are insulated from all of that a little bit more. And, and, I, and I think I've participated in enough business conversations to realize kind of some of the better ways that you can talk to people that help them understand your decisions. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, do you find other people like you? Because I've, I've, you're the first I've run into with that background. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's it's actually not all that all that uncommon. I think there's probably a lot of us, especially in marketing which tends to kind of have some of the more creative side marketing and advertising where you have people who are thinking creatively and, and artistically as as well, but um yeah, no, I don't I don't think it's super uncommon. I've met quite a few people that shared that experience. Interesting. Okay. So you've identified some of um some of the things that can go wrong when designers are talking to non-designers about design, but are there other common missteps that you see? In your own work, yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing that we can in, in do to improve um, 
the way that we talk to stakeholders is is to listen to them. I mean, listening is is one of the most important things that that too often when we when we're receiving we, we see our our role in the process is to receive feedback from stakeholders um, in these meetings when really we're there to facilitate a conversation about our work. Um, and so I think it becomes difficult to listen when you're you're hearing it as feedback and you're trying to think about how you're going to then defend it and respond to it and kind of be be have that defensive posture. And so I always encourage uh, people to, you know, let your stakeholders talk as much as they want. You know, sometimes people are good. They're going to explain it to themselves in the process. They, they want to know that they were heard. And if you let them talk through it, they're going to feel listened. Some, some, you know, if you've ever had a customer service experience, uh, sometimes people just want to gripe. They just want to complain. They just want to tell about their experience. And then once you've had the opportunity to do that, you feel a whole lot better about it, right? And so... If, but if you if you jump directly to kind of this defensive posture of well the reason we did it this way is because it's going to sound like you kind of discarded what they said that you weren't listening and so part of that is like reading between the lines right hearing what they're not saying you know there there may be other issues there may be there may be there, what what they say they 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 need um, or what they, so what they say they want and what they actually need could be two different things, right? The the prescriptive solution that they tell us might be different from what we will ultimately propose. So we have to work hard to kind of uncover the real problem. And you can't do that unless you're really taking the t- time to listen to what they're saying and pick apart and, and, and kind of abstract it into something that is going to make um, a little bit more sense for them. So l- listening is definitely the, the, the uh, a, a key part of it. Mm, it's it's interesting because I always say you're part therapist, um, and it feels as though absolutely you're an investigator just trying to pick up clues, and and sometimes those things are not spoken, right? It's like what was not said. Yeah, exactly. And so, like asking questions is part of listening too, right? You've got to you've got to hear what they're saying and what they're not saying, and then ask clarifying questions to get at the at the heart of it, right? And I mean, par- writing, writing it down too, because they're going to say all kinds of stuff and you need to like take good notes and you can repeat stuff back to them, right? Okay. What I hear you saying is this, like just to, to, to clarify. If, if the problem that we have with articulating our decisions is, is, has to do with misunderstanding and a lack of a shared vocabulary, then the best way that we can get there is to really listen and be sure that they that we have the right understanding about what, what it is that we're, be, we're being tasked to do. Sometimes what happens, and you know, we, we joke about the CEO button, you know, someone coming in and just kind of like, everything has to change, you know, back to the drawing board. And then everyone kind of groans and feels like this, this person's just like a jerk coming in and making these changes. Sometimes they're something, something else has changed that's outside of our control. You know, they, they just came from a budget meeting and stuff was cut and, or the project is like on the chopping block and, and they're actually just trying to save our own butts, you know, like right. the, you never really know what's going on. And so you can't, you can't always have that insight. And so I think we have to trust that, that we, and, and this is part of it, that, that if, that if there is uh, this misunderstanding or if they are asking us to change something unexpected, um, that there may be something else going on. Right. And, and we have to be able to solve and, and, and meet their, their needs, the needs of the business as well. Right. And at the end of the day, you're all, you all have the same goal, right? Absolutely. And I think this is where, uh, you know, a lot of times we, we don't, we don't see ourselves on the same team headed in the same direction. Right. And I think the more often that we can remind ourselves and our stakeholders that by, by pointing out the, the common ground we do have, 
the more likely we are to get our work approved too. Because I, I you know, sometimes what happens is we go straight to that d- defense of our work. Well, the reason we did it this way is, and but I, I think, and I talk a lot in the book about uh, leading with a with a yes. That is that that like the first word out of your mouth should be the word yes, right? Even if you disagree with what they're. <laughs> suggesting right that we can and this this has roots in improv and you've probably heard of like the concept of the yes and um and it's it's the same thing but but applied to like these design discussions where we can say yes i completely agree with you that we need to solve this problem and in that in that phrase you're not agreeing with that what that other person proposed or what they said you might still disagree with with what they're suggesting but you're reminding everyone that we do have that common goal and we are going in the same direction and we all have the, the best, our best interests in mind. And so you remind them of the areas in which you do agree before you get to the points in which you don't. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you mentioned design feedback earlier. Um, talk a little bit about um, how you think designers should respond to design feedback from non-designers. Well, leading with the yes is definitely a, a, a big a big part of it. You should always, you know, and and it's using the word yes is meant uh, not to do anything and everything they say, right? <laughs> is that they can just like have their way with your work, but again, to kind of foster this idea that that we agree, you know, and that we're going in the in the right direction. Um, so that's that's definitely you know part of the the first step. Um, but then I I have in in the book I go into a lot more detail. But I have this acrostic that I call the ideal response to uh, design feedback, and and it's it's an acrostic where each each letter of the word ideal kind of stands for part of the message that you want to deliver to them. And so the I is to identify the problem. That the first step is to kind of talk about okay here's the problem that we're chasing after. Right this is this is the thing we're trying to solve. Then the D is to describe your solution. Right here's how I've solved this. Um, and th- this is what we believe is going to actually uh, fix that problem. The E then is to empathize uh, with the user. Again, we have we still have to bring the user into it because our we may be the only window that our stakeholders have into the lives of our users. And so it's absolutely important that we bring that to the table. And sometimes that's in the form of data or a user test or or an interview or something. But we we, we need to remind them of the person on the other end. But then the next one, which is the other side of that coin, is that the A is to appeal to the business because it's not enough to just say, here's the solution for the user. We have to let them know how that's going to help the business, you know, and this is going to be more about, you know, some sort of metric or, or KPI or goal that we have as, as, as a business. You know, if we make these choices, we do, we actually believe it's going to help us improve conversion, right? Um, and then the, the last one, which is, which is absolutely critical and is kind of the crux of the book, the L is to lock in agreement and, and getting agreement at, at the end of this process is super important because if you, if you leave that meeting without agreement, uh, then you're just going to kind of languish in indecision. And so even if you're not sure of the direction, like it's better to do something, uh, even if it's wrong, uh, than to do nothing at all. And so you you have to be direct in saying, you know, do you agree with this? You know, can I get your approval? Um, I think it's okay to be that direct and be sure that that we force them to give us a clear yes or no. Because if it's no, we need to we need to restart that discussion and figure out what where we went wrong so that we can fix it. Um, because if you don't have that L at the at the end of the word ideal, then all you have is an idea, <laughs> right? Um, and we need something that is more than than just an idea, something that we can actually get out into the into the marketplace and and help people. That makes sense. So I'm curious, as an aside, um, are there do you have certain pet peeves of feedback that you receive from non designers? Uh, I'm just curious. Are there common, uh, yeah, annoyances? 
Sure. I mean, one, so one of the things that I, I harp on a lot is this concept of helping our stakeholders convert likes into works. Uh, that is to get people to move from talking about what they like and what they don't like, which are just their preferences and kind of this purely subjective concept of design, to what works and what doesn't work, which speaks more to the, the, the effectiveness of our work or the usability of our applications, right? It's way too easy for people to just come in and believe that all design is subjective and what they like matters the most. And, oh, well, I just don't like it. And so we can't do it that way, right? It, it's not that it's inappropriate for someone to say that they don't like it, but we need to take it then the next level and say, okay, I understand that you don't like this control here, but why doesn't it work uh, to have it here? Uh, or why doesn't this control work? Mm. And when you re when you rephrase it to them that way, you kind of put them in a position of explaining their own preferences, right? You you allow them then to articulate their design decisions back to you in a way that will hopefully be more helpful and get like down to that root cause. Mm, interesting. Good point. So um, one final question beyond obviously being articulate, what are some of the skills and attributes you look for when you're hiring designers? Um, yeah, so th- that's that's an interesting one because I think um, skills in particular are something that uh, can be learned. I think a lot of times on the job, there's always going to be like a new tool, you know. <laughs> there's going to be a, com- a new methodology or design thinking that's going to come out next month. You know, there's kind of always a new, uh, cool way of, of of doing things or working that 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 all of us kind of just figure out as as we go, and so. Honestly, I think the main thing, aside from like being good communicators, I think the main thing that I look for in people is uh, being being learners, like someone who's not afraid to really just jump in and and get their feet wet and get their hands dirty and just figure stuff out as as we go. Um, I think that some of the best people on our team are the people that know just enough. Uh, uh, about what we're doing to kind of be dangerous and to kind of understand the capabilities and limitations of what we're doing, but 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 they're they, they but they have something to prove, right? They 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 still have a lot to learn and they still have a long way to go, and and so they those kinds of people tend to do really really well on our team because uh, we work with a lot of really big brands and companies that are building interfaces for websites that sometimes millions of people might use, and so there's a lot of a lot of pressure. And when you ha- I think when you have that opportunity to really step up and, uh, you know, in, improve your game and, and prove that you can really do, you know, what I believe in you can do, then that, like, that's the best kind of person, someone that, 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 uh, that, that really still has a lot to, to learn. Excellent. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Mary. It was great chatting. You can reach Tom through his Twitter handle, at Tom Griever. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn, so you never miss an episode.